Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we speak to Adrian Roberts, a BC resident who lives with the stigma and challenges of having a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Have you decided you're never going to get married? That may be a good thing. And did you know there is such a thing as breast implant sickness? We talk about that and more tonight with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Plus, your stories about the fountain of youth and no sex before marriage with the one you love. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Many, many people live with invisible disabilities, and which is why I would like to showcase this week, because it is Invisible Disabilities Week. And although there are a number of them, too many to name today, we are going to focus in on schizophrenia, which is an invisible disability. Schizophrenia is a serious mental disorder where people interpret reality abnormally. Schizophrenia may result in some combination of hallucinations, delusions, extremely disordered thinking, and behavior that impairs daily function. It can be disabling for some people. People with schizophrenia require lifelong treatment. My next guest, and I'm delighted to have her on the program, is an advocate who will shed light on the hidden challenges of mental illness. She is Adrienne Roberts. She is a resident of British Columbia. Good evening, Adrienne. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. I really appreciate this. I really appreciate you coming on, offering to share your story, advocate for people who are living with some of the hidden challenges that mental health, uh, mental illness can bring to them. There's still such a stigma, which I, I, I hate to say that, but stigma does still exist. Um, perhaps you can shed a little bit more light on why that is. Um, but you live with schizophrenia and have lived with schizophrenia for uh, some time. Tell me a little bit about your diagnosis, what, what exactly it is. I mean, I can read a definition of what schizophrenia is, but what is it for somebody who's living with it daily? First off, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, (laughs) So I was diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, quite a while ago. It was in 2013. And to share in my own words how I would explain being diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's a perception disorder. So it's where your perception of reality is off compared to other people's. And usually it has symptoms of delusion, hallucinations, auditory, hearing voices, different symptoms like that. I also struggled a great deal with paranoia and grandiose Mm -hmm. thinking as well. Right. And so this is when it's left untreated. Is that, is that correct? That's it. If it's not treated, it also can come up while you're treated too, it might not be as severe, but those symptoms can still Mm -hmm. surface at times as well. They can still exist. And how old were you when you were diagnosed with this, if you don't mind my asking? I was 23 at the time of my diagnosis. At the Mm -hmm. time I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, I was also diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I did not really understand mental health at that time, so I didn't even cue in to the fact that I would ever struggle with my mental health. So at that time, I was pretty resistant and also in my uh, delusion and paranoia. I just didn't connect the dots that I was struggling. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very heady time. I'm sure it was. And and it's a time of life where, you know, many people have just graduated from college or university. They're setting out on their careers. Right. Um, had you had you had difficulty prior to the time around the diagnosis? Like when you were a child, did you have difficulty in school? Um, did you have depression or anxiety issues or any other behavioral issues? Or did this come out of the blue? I would say in hindsight, I'm able to kind of cue into some of my childhood behaviors that now I'm like, mm, there was something going on there. Not so specifically maybe for schizophrenia, but I had high anxiety. I had a difficulty communicating. My behavior responses were often different from others. So back then, I didn't really know how to understand that as a child or how to respond to it. So, yeah. Of course. Um, and, and how difficult was it for you to receive this diagnosis? I mean, had you even heard of schizophrenia before being, having been diagnosed at the tender age of 23? Oh, oh boy. That's a fun subject for me. I had heard of schizophrenia before. I have an uncle who had that diagnosed, so I was aware of people being diagnosed with it, but I did have the stigma of thinking, oh, my crazy uncle is the one who... I was, I was a town, this is mine. I definitely had a lot of my own ideas of what that diagnosis even meant. And kind of what the media said, I definitely just assumed was the reality of that diagnosis. So, so you had your own preconceived notions having a family member with schizophrenia? Yes. Yes. I really did. And then... Life isn't fair, and then you're diagnosed with it. Oh, I remember the day I was diagnosed, I remember feeling great. Now I know I'm crazy, and now everybody else will know now, too. I still sometimes see myself holding on to some of the stigma. It's very hard to see myself. The word itself Uh just sounds not that great. Right. It's really hard to let go of the stigma that a word has. It, it, it certainly is, I'm sure. Um, so when you were diagnosed, and I understand that people yeah. who are living, and correct me if I'm wrong, people who are living in a delusional state or with hallucinations or are hearing um, voices maybe tell them to do something or mm-hmm. like not pay attention to loved ones, for yeah. example having disordered thinking or that grandiosity that you mentioned, sometimes people can think there's nothing wrong with me. How difficult was it for you? How difficult was it for you to get the treatment that you needed? I would say it was, um, I would say it was very difficult. It It was very difficult Mm -hmm. in the sense of what you brought up because I didn't want to admit that there was any struggles happening with me. I had this Mm -hmm. grandiose idea that, I was doing better than great. Um, I really fed a lot of the symptoms uh, that I thought were positive to myself. It just seemed offensive to think there was something wrong with me. And with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, it's really hard as a supporter to come in and try to support it when the person doesn't feel anything wrong with them. It's really hard. Yeah, it's challenging. That's one of the big blocks to treatment, isn't it? Yes, there's huge resistance with that diagnosis. Even uh, if the person doesn't even 
have a diagnosis that they're exhibiting the symptoms, having psychosis, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine what you were going through at the time. But obviously, something or someone got through to you, and you decided to be treated or accept the treatment that was being offered. It's an interesting um, I'm sure... story, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I like sharing this part of the story because I think most people can resonate to it. So I was delusional and in paranoia, hearing voices all the time, but I didn't want to receive help. But I was struggling, and I did have a sense that I know I didn't want to struggle anymore, regardless of not admitting the actuality of the struggle or not being able to. So I did go to, I'm from BC, I think you said you were too. I went to a, a local community um, band office. Um, as a, I'm of Indigenous descent. I felt okay going there, even though I didn't trust you know, other professionals. For some reason, that was okay. And I talked to a nurse practitioner there. And I have interesting hindsight. I can remember saying lots of weird, messed up thoughts that I don't think make sense now. And I'm pretty sure they didn't make sense to her. But I just remember her. She didn't give me no... You know, in you know, looks of like, what are you talking about? Like this girl, you know, she needs help. Like she didn't give any of those typical looks of, oh, this person needs help, kind of, you know, looks. And I remember that because I remember, even though what I said was wrong and inaccurate uh-huh. and delusional, she still made me feel like a human, and she made me feel valid that it was okay to share how I saw things, even if it wasn't right. My guest is Adrienne Roberts. She is a young woman living with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, which is an invisible disability. And this week is Invisible Disabilities Week. She's an advocate who sheds light on the hidden challenges of mental illness. She shared her story. She was diagnosed at the age of 23, about nine years ago. And, um, you know, it, it's quite a compelling story. Um, Adrian, thanks so much for staying on the line with me. You, you talked about um, having hallucinations and delusions and disordered thinking and that a nurse practitioner helped you because it was somebody who listened to you, who, who believed you, regardless of the fact that you even felt that some of your uh, speaking was perhaps disordered or, or not quite right. Um, what is generally the treatment for people with schizophrenia? I think for a bit of like my journey with my own treatment, um, I can you get different for individuals. So after the nurse practitioner talked with me, she referred me to mental health. And then that's when I started to get support and treatment. Um, initially, they, the psychiatrist talked to me for several meetings, and I was establishing where my thoughts and uh, symptoms were at, and eventually diagnosing me with schizophrenia, depression, and anxiety. And then it was looked into for medication, what might help with that, but also what are some other different coping skills that might help me, what is my living situation, my environment mm-hmm. like. So it was a bunch of different factors they looked into. Uh, and it, it took quite a journey to get to a space where I started to feel even mildly normal. I think that right. was a you know, a little bit of a grain of salt because it's quite a journey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was a lot of 
steps involved with it. I am sure. But you're living a healthy life today. You're here as a guest on yeah, <laughs> a that's world famous pretty, show. Pretty cool, yeah. Thank you. I know. And you're, <laughs> Sorry, you're a fabulous guest. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, I really appreciate this because so many people suffer with the challenges of mental illness. So what are oh, some yeah. of the hidden challenges of mental illness that people might not think about? Because there's two sides to that. There's the hidden challenges that you yourself will deal with, and then there's the hidden challenges of how others respond to it and how you perceive others responding to you or how you see others respond to. So both there's a few aspects of that. I think for myself, the challenge was having personal responsibility. That's really hard to have in life in general. So with that diagnosis, yeah, for that diagnosis, I think it took me six years. And I mean, I have quite a lot of clarity, so that's not everyone's gift to get clarity. So personal responsibility is pretty huge. Still yeah. working on that, probably till I die. Um, Said everyone the- in the world should be, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Also, just finding the right support. And I remember I was thinking when I was first diagnosed, great, my support is a psychiatrist and case manager who are paid to support me. But, like, it's just finding the right support that, you know, I felt was a good fit and actually was a good fit with challenging. Also, the acceptance of my own struggles. Always Absolutely. A journey. Yeah. Adrian, we're up against the clock. I wish I could have you on for longer. I know you're fantastic. I wish you all the best of good health and um, invisible invisible disabilities week. Google that. You can find out more information about it. Thank you so much. We're definitely going to get you back because I think you're awesome. And I think you can help a lot of people. Friends getting married again. And you're just like, why? I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, like you know what it is. Why are you doing that again? Anyway, um, <laughs> I had hilarious. a conversation. To... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Leo, let me warn you here. <laughs> I mean, clients to get married again. I'm like, what are you thinking? You know, unless there's like, uh, you know, <laughs> I, anyway, I, I don't want to joke about, um, about this extremely important subject, but like, Anyhow, oftentimes the second marriage ends in divorce as well because the issues that were in the first marriage, which the second spouses never think there were any issues for that, that they're one that they fall in love with. They're just like, they always blame it on the ex-spouse and then the two ex-spouses become friends (laughs) because they realize that, you know, they both fell for whatever, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, important to work out your stuff. And you, you heard my guest earlier, Adrian Roberts say, everybody has to take responsibility for their contribution to the breakdown in the marriage. I'm going off on a tangent here too, but, um, that's actually how I work in my clinical practice. People have to take responsibility for their behaviors, for their reasons for a sexless marriage. For example, people always blame. That's a very classic one where people blame the spouse who has the lower desire. Desire discrepancy is a normal thing in a relationship. Um, But when it's particularly low on the one side, it's just all about they won't have sex with me as opposed to looking at yourself and saying, you know, hey, they won't have sex with me because these are the reasons whatever they, whatever they may be. So it's taking responsibility, not blaming the other person. Anyway, 
Those are the people who get married. And then, you know, a lot of people feel pressure to marry. They feel pressure from family or friends and especially married friends want everybody to get married. I, I had a friend who said, well, you know, everybody's getting married at the time. I said, why'd you marry him anyway? Uh, if you'd had the red flag, she said, well, everybody else was getting married and there's just nobody else around, you know, and, and I actually thought she was crazy about the guy, but apparently she wasn't from the get go, but that doesn't stop people from getting married. Anyway, you know, our culture also promotes marriage as well. And, and maybe you would like to get married one day and I don't want to, you know, prevent you from, you know, that walk down the aisle, that, that fabulous day, that $60,000, $70,000 day. Um, Anyway, but maybe, just maybe, you're dead set against the idea. There could be some benefits. You don't feel like being pushed into finding a spouse because, or you just haven't found the right spouse. Or, you know, you don't care that there's an implication that there's something wrong with you for remaining single. There's nothing wrong with, nothing wrong. Most married people would tell you, <laughs> nothing wrong for remaining single. Anyway, but if you're leaning toward a life, to, toward a single life, there are some certain benefits in that life choice. You are being true to you. Whether you want to be single for now or for always, it's essential for your happiness that you do what is right for you. Live true to yourself. You may struggle to know your own heart, but that is a struggle worth having. Believe you me. You will also have way more time to devote to family and friends because you don't have to devote yourself to a spouse or a partner. So you have more time for other relationships. And a lot of people find this quite beneficial, but you know, whether you have to work to have closer relationships with family or friends or a partner, it's important that you nurture a support system, whatever that support system may be. You want to share your experiences, your celebrate your ups and have people help you through the downs in life as well. And so it's important to have that uh, support system as well. A single life does not mean a lonely life or being alone. When you are not married, you have less, much fewer obligations and responsibilities. I mean, a lot of people, they learn this after they get divorced. They don't want to get divorced. And then all of a sudden they're divorced. And then they're just like, Hey, I feared this. I, I didn't want to be without my children. I didn't want my children to go to my ex while I was alone, but I'm loving this time alone. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a break. So you have less responsibility, even with family and friends who may require your attention, you are likely freer to do what you want to do without a partner. You got to always think about that partner. You know, what are they doing? Where are they? Are they expecting me to come home? What's going on here? <laughs> anyway, you always have them on your mind. They're like children. <laughs> you can never get them off your mind. Anyway, um, but committing to share your life with someone else means that you take on the responsibility of being supportive of them being a counselor to them, being a cook, being a chef, a cleaner, a housekeeper, everything, a muse, the whole thing. Anyway, lover, friend, business partner, the whole nine yards. I mean, we're practically running corporations out of these homes today. So it's a lot, but when you're on your own, you don't have to respond to anyone. You don't have to answer to anybody. You can just answer to yourself. And that looks pretty darn appealing sometimes. You also, if you're somebody who likes to snowboard or bike or boat or play golf or go fishing, art. You know, you have all that time to devote to your interests and hobbies and it is guilt 
free. There is virtually no guilt associated with having fun. <laughs> this is looking good. Again, as I say to people I know who are marrying again, what are you thinking? Anyway, um, you might appreciate not having to curtail your passions and desires to accommodate a relationship, but beware. You risk diving so far into them that you might wake up one day to discover that you are lonely. So, you know, two sides to the coin here. Anyway, when you're on your own, when you are not married, you've decided not to marry, you can also engage in self-exploration and personal development. And, and who doesn't like that life path? You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to this Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got lots to talk about in this second hour of the program. We're going to be talking about uterine fibroids in addition to um, some of your emails. And I'm going to be answering some of those emails and, and sharing some stories about uh, some of my virtual clients because that's um, pretty much the way that I'm seeing patients these days, unless I absolutely have to see them in the office anyway. Um, and also going to be talking about why Ontario's top doctor may feels that we may need to institute mask mandates again as we head toward the winter. But right now, joining me on the line, you have heard her voice before. She is a medical doctor in, well, in wellness and performance. She empowers many top professionals and many, many people to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She does leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, a trainer, and writer. She talks about mental health, burnout prevention, leadership development, and racism is a public health crisis. She's also a speaker and coach, and I'm delighted to have her join me on the line, Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Marie. Pleasure to be here again. Oh, lovely to have you. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Um, we've got lots to talk about on the program, but right now I wanted to talk about something that's not actually a medical diagnosis, but potentially should be and maybe will be in the near future, and that is breast implant illness. And it's a term that some women and physicians use to refer to a wide range of symptoms that can develop after undergoing reconstructive or cosmetic augmentation with breast implants. Now, many women choose that route because they feel that their breasts aren't large enough or reconstruction can occur after a diagnosis um, of breast cancer and um, it can ensue after um, treatment and reconstructive. Many women need reconstruction and implants are utilized for that. What do you know about breast implant illness? And for example, what are some of the symptoms? Very good question. You know, this is a relatively new term. Um, it's not, like you said, officially recognized as a diagnosis. But when you look retrospectively, some of myself in my patient practice, um, definitely there have been women who've had challenges post-implants for various reasons. Symptoms are nonspecific. So it's it's a tough one to diagnose because there are many other reasons for these symptoms. For example, joint and muscle pain. Well, that can happen for many reasons. Um, fatigue, mood disorders like anxiety, depression, um, GI, gastrointestinal problems, sleep problems, 
brain fog, you know? These symptoms can be anything from, you know, menopausal-like symptoms. These could be COVID-like symptoms. These could be symptoms that represent a diagnosis like depression or anxiety. So it's not really clear. So a lot of investigations and questions have to go back and forth between the patient and their care providers. And, you know, many women... um with all due respect, many women experience from healthcare providers, uh, they're mm-hmm. dismissed. Oftentimes their symptoms 100%. are dismissed. Yeah. Yep. And some of these like chronic fatigue, breathing problems, anxiety, headaches, hair loss, you know, I, I can see, or gastrointestinal problems. I can see those symptoms being dismissed in a woman or, you know, being told it's all in your head. You know, there's nothing wrong with you especially if physicians or healthcare providers don't probe deeper and, yeah. you know, think of the association between a breast implant and these Definitely. symptoms. 100%. Well, they could say it always normal. You know, you're getting older, you know, it's normal to feel tired and, you know, mood changes, menopause. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you, it might not be taken as seriously as we would like it to be taken. You, you know, you're very That's correct. right. And do some women experience some of the symptoms and uh, other women experience a lot more of the symptoms? Like, is there a, a variation on this, a, a continuum? And are there different times when a woman can experience these symptoms? Like, does it occur right after surgery or occur long after surgery or any time after surgery? Great question. It can be any time, and that's what makes it so challenging. Like, we have the, you know, the most likely post-operative complications that can occur with any surgery, like infection, redness, irritation. Like, that's pretty common, right? But then if you have mm-hmm. symptoms that are occurring 5, 10, 20 years later, you know, the doctor's probably not going to be asking, hey, did you have breast implants? And, like, how many doctors right. actually, or nurse practitioners ask that question, right? It's exactly. kind of like, yeah. Yeah, that would be a very tough one to diagnose. Now, a lot of the symptoms of breast implant illness are associated with autoimmune and connective tissues disorders like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and scleroderma. Um, You know, why is it that some women, is this associated with the breast implants? I think anyone that is prone to an autoimmune condition, which is where the body fights against anything foreign will be prone to breast implant illness, right? Because the breast implants are foreign, despite science's way to make it as natural as possible. It's a foreign substance, so your body might attack it and then lead to a cascade of other symptoms that can just be debilitating, as we've mentioned. Um, Uh So I think those who are more prone to autoimmune or inflammatory responses might be more prone to this condition. Like, for example, some people are more prone to scarring, right? So you have surgery, they get these big, raised scars we call keloids. Other people, you can't even tell, right? It's mm-hmm. their body's way of responding to this insult. That's right. People react very differently um, to exactly. this. You know, this is, this is a tough one. I really appreciate you talking about this because, you know, I can imagine so many women who had made a decision to have a breast implant and then maybe years later became ill, they may not even be associating the symptoms that they have with the breast implant that they have. And, you know, they may not even clue into it. Fortunately, in May 2019, the FDA 
released a statement noting that the agency's officials are taking steps to better characterize breast implant illness and its risk factors. So what can a woman do who has been diagnosed with breast implant illness or BII? Um, What are their options for treatment? Yeah, well, one is surgical. Remove the implant and the scars that are associated with the implant, which does help the majority of patients, though not necessarily. The symptoms can reoccur. And then all, we all know about the treat the symptoms, right, which is kind of sucky, but, you know, treat the fatigue, treat the depression, treat the sleeping problems. Well, that kind of leads can lead to other problems. So really, those are your main choices right now. It's remove the breast implants. It might help for majority. may come back, even with the implants being removed. <clears throat> deal with symptoms or how to deal with it. But that's not really a great option, especially when you have many symptoms. Oh, absolutely. You make such a great point. You can remove the implants, but one may still suffer the symptoms. Yeah, like the effects of the breast Im- like implants have at this point, they've gone beyond the breast. Like so the cord, the, the, uh, I don't know, the horse is gone, like the gate's open. It's, it's the train's off right. the rails. It's, it's late. It's unfortunate. Right. Okay, and it sort of seeped through the rest rest of the body is that what yeah is that why we're getting all those different symptoms exactly it's like a domino effect right it's Mm -hmm. way gone down like it's just it's unfortunate but that is how some people's bodies responded to insults on the body it's unfortunate but that is a reality and there would be some body dysmorphic um you know issues perhaps or body image issues because yeah. when you remove the implants that changes things oh my they're, goodness yes they're not exactly. going to replace it like, with something else and women exactly. may not want that mm-hmm. exactly so that whole mental health piece like women don't just wake up one day and I want a breast implant like there's a lot of thought goes into this right especially if you've had you know a diagnosis that you didn't want like cancer right mm-hmm. um, right it it really can do one hurt one's like sense of like femininity or just, it can bring a lot of fears. Like, okay, I'm having this problem. What else is happening? Am I going to have breast cancer? Is something else happening to me? Like it, it's scary. And we don't have it well characterized. It's a relatively new term. There's a lot of unknowns and, you know, there's still literature. We talk about certain breast implants have supposedly increased the risk of certain rare cancers. So it's, this whole, this whole concept of breast implants is, there's a lot we don't know. There's a Pandora's box, right? And we're only just scraping the surface oh. into the implication of the surgery. Totally. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She joins me on the line from Alberta, Calgary, Alberta. Uh, she's a medical doctor, wellness and performance. She deals with professionals to help them reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's a speaker, trainer, and a writer. Dr. Mitchell, how can people get in touch with you before we even dive into this uterine fibroid segment? How can people get in touch with you if they need to? Yeah, thank you. Um, so my social media handle is Dr. Tommy Mitchell, D-R-T-O-M-I Mitchell, whether LinkedIn, Twitter, and I think the main thing. So yeah, Dr. Tommy Mitchell, you search me, I'll show up first page of Google. So that's how to find me. 
Perfect. Okay, that's great because I'm sure people might want to benefit from your services. And I mean, your services are just such a wide berth <laughs> of services that you provide, yeah, which is you. awesome. You know, especially for a medical doctor, sometimes, oftentimes medical doctors focus in on, you know, certain areas only, even like GPs who might deal with hypertension and obesity and diabetes only. They don't even deal with mm -hmm. the obesity. They're, that's just presented to them. But diabetes and hypertension, you know, uh, maybe minor injuries type of a thing. So anyway, I really appreciate all that you do. Um, talking about another medical condition that affects women, uterine fibroids. Yeah. What exactly are uterine fibroids? Yes, I mean, this is a really good topic because this is dear to heart. Um, so uterine fibroids are non-cancerous growth of the uterus. So it's uterine tissue, but too much in the wrong place. Um, the key is non-cancerous. Um, they, they occur commonly during the childbearing years. And they're very common. Uh, up to like 75, 80% of women at some point might be diagnosed with fibroids. Okay. And the key there is that they're non-cancerous and they're not even associated with an increased risk of uterine cancer and almost never develop into cancer, but they can cause other problems. And yes, uh, one of the main, yeah. And one of the main problems is excessive bleeding. Yeah. Definitely excessive bleeding, periods lasting more than a week, periods that are soaking through a pad, tampon per hour can cause um, fertility challenges, getting pregnant, staying pregnant, bloating, um, just a lot of things. Anemia, it can also affect the bladder, like, correct? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's pushing on the bladder, it changes the angle of things, you could get frequency, having to go to the bathroom often, and just urgency, mm -hmm. Not fun at all. No. And so how might a woman feel when she's bleeding excessively, having frequency, pelvic pressure, heavy menstrual bleeding, backache? How might a woman feel with those? I feel symptoms? terrible, exhausted, frustrated, You're missing a lot of work, missing life. Your life is um, controlled by your period. What color pants you can wear, what you can do, activities, like it's, that's not good. It's not good at all. Exactly. Again, one of those conditions that a woman might be dismissed. When should a woman see her doctor? The moment you feel like something is off. I honestly, in my practice, I like to tell my parents, especially with their teenage girls, that we should kind of have this whole sexual reproductive health conversation, like understanding what is normal, because so many young women don't understand what is normal. They might hear from their aunties or, aunt, you know, say, oh, Aunt Flo's coming. Oh, it's so terrible, blah, 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 blah. They get to normalize that this is, should be terrible. And it shouldn't mm -hmm. be. Right? Mm -hmm. So it should be early. Like, yeah, early. Puberty. Before puberty. Absolutely. Abs totally. Totally. And, you know, I, I want to mention that a lot of women who are bleeding excessively might also be anemic. So they might suffer anemia yes. as well. Yeah. Um, we only have about 30 seconds left, Dr. Mitchell. Uh, is there treatment for uterine fibroids? Definitely treatment. There's hormonal, non-hormonal, there's surgical interventions. But I do want to say women who have the highest risk are women of color, black women. So um, please mm -hmm. have this discussion with your physicians, your healthcare providers. It could save you a lot of heartache down the road. So an important differential diagnosis. 
for an anemic well, woman. It certainly is. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. Really appreciate you coming on, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. Sounds fabulous. Good night, everyone. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Just wanted to read some of your text messages and emails, and clearly you've been paying attention. Dear Maureen, I opened my first business at 25. I had absolutely no intention of ever getting married until, that is, I met the man of my dreams. I got married at 38, had my first kid at 40. There's never a perfect time to do these things. We got to honor our own timing. Indeed, we do. Thank you so much. Another one uh, with uh, related to the breast plant in uh, breast implants segment, breast plant il- illness, breast implants. I'm saying breast plants, <laughs> breast implants. You heard the yawn earlier, Leo. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> I'm losing it. Um, or I've lost it. Anyway, Maureen McGrath. Really, I wonder what planet these women come from who want bigger breasts by getting implants. Male creeps have sexually harassed me since I've had large breasts, naturally big. Nothing pleasant about being big. And I cannot run without a strongly supportive bra. I can hardly do physical activities because of them. I've been begging my doctors to get my breasts surgically removed! Exclamation point. That is from someone in Winnipeg, (laughs) just for anonymity's sake. Um, You know what? There is something called a breast reduction and lift. They typically do a bit of a lift with that and a breast reduction. You don't have to beg your doctors to surgically remove them. You can just have them reduced. I hear it's a fabulous thing. Um, And uh, less than a root canal. It's not even painful. And anyone that I know that has done that is delighted with the results. So, um, next one. Hi, Maureen. Again, I'm going to keep some anonymity here. People provide a lot of information that I keep out, but without losing the message. Have you done an episode on repressed memories? No, I have not. So I can't send you the link that you've requested. Um, but this person says I'm divorced from somebody who believes they were sexually abused by a relative. The memories quote unquote emerged after they started to see a psychologist after the age of 50. It turned our lives upside down, very frustrated and confused. And that is from a listener in Calgary. Thank you very much for that as well. Um, just a little addition came in around the, um, the large breasted woman in Winnipeg. Um, I'm sure there's many women who have large breasts can relate to um, what she has said. And, and then she adds to, and to add to that, finding the right bra has been hard. Though in recent years, someone finally made suitable bras and the hateful comments I get from other jealous women who say that they want to have large breasts, but they must not know what they are talking about. Having large breasts has never made me popular or my life better. It is, it can be very, very difficult for women to have large breasts. I totally understand. Um, Anyway, but there are, there are treatment options that you can, you can get. And oftentimes women who have large breasts suffer with chafing beneath the breasts. It can be painful. They can have back aches, neck aches, issues with posture. Um, the list is endless. And, and oftentimes the provincial health programs will cover 
the um, surgery if there is a certain distance between the shoulder, the top of the shoulder and the nipple. So I would speak further to my doctors about, um, about possible breast reduction and lift. Anyway, um, so I wanted to talk to you about a few patients that I had. I just thought it would be, um, you know, a little interesting to see what I see in terms of my clinical practice. And this one I was very happy to see because so often I see patients in their 30s, 40s, couples who are in sexless marriages, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be telling me, you know, decades, 10, uh, 10 years, they haven't had sex. Um, somebody wrote to me today, in fact, and, and said that they had not had sex. It had been a long, long time, um, a year and a half with no sexual contact. And then the only thing that they were told by the psychologist that they went to see was that what a great thing, um, they were told that's fantastic that they have a good sex drive. It's a sign of good health, but it doesn't help this individual in terms of, um, having regaining the intimacy in their relationship. Um, sure. It's great to have a, a high sex drive or, or even a very average normal sex drive. But when the partner that you're with has a lower than average sex drive, or no sex drive, it's a very, very disheartening place to be. It's a place of loneliness and, and people can become depressed and feel isolated and feel shame and lack understanding. So it's very, very difficult. That's why you have to get to the bottom of the issues. And that's also where it means to take responsibility. Oftentimes there's a reason people are not having sex or people have no sexual desire. And it could be because of their own health problems like vaginal dryness, painful sex, depression, anxiety, um, you know, body image issues, uh, past history of abuse, um, traumatic events. There's many, many multiple reasons, but it also can be because of the partner, because they don't want to have sex with the partner because the partner is nasty, has a drinking problem, has a substance use and abuse problem, um, is narcissistic, has narcissistic tendencies. Uh, for example, when that person does something wrong and they blame it on you. And then they want you to apologize to them. That is a classic narcissist or somebody who has narcissistic tendencies. Um, anyway, which is why I was very glad that this young person came to see me before they married somebody that they were totally in love with. But that person who happened to identify as a man, um, had low sexual desire. And, and she said, I can't marry him when he has no sexual desire, we don't have sex. I love him. We have a blast. He's the perfect guy in every way, except the fact that there's no intimacy. And now I'm starting to get depressed myself, she said, and, you know, wonder what is wrong with me. And I cannot enter into a marriage and have a life that is sexless. You know, if more people ask this question, we'd be in a much better way and have much healthier relationships. Um, and so, you know, it turns out you know, fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in, um, 
in a relationship. And, you know, yes, her question was, can men get low sexual desire? Yes, they can. As it turned out, to make a long story short, this particular person was burnt out, exhausted, never said no to anybody, was a people pleaser, worked long hours, and was absolutely exhausted. And that you know, was depleted. And that's what happens when you do too much. And when you do too much for others and you don't take care of yourself and there was very little self-care, um, you know, you suffer and oftentimes it can come out in sexual dysfunction. Then I had a 92 year old who looked two decades younger than 92. I was shocked at the age. And I said, you know, to what do you attribute this youthful glow, this fantastic youthful appearance. He was a good looking guy as well. And you could tell he was probably very good looking when he was younger. Um, but he said, you know, find a good woman and marry her and, you know, have a great marriage. And I said, but you previously mentioned a girlfriend. And he said, yes, my, my wife passed away. We were married for 62 years. I miss her every single day. And yes, I do have a girlfriend, but there's no sex and that's why I'm here to see you. So 92 still has sexual desire, but sometimes the equipment doesn't work very well. He had tried the medications, but the medications gave him significant side effects like nasal congestion and headaches and heart pounding. And it made him nervous because of his age. And so he wondered if there were other uh, ways that he could combat this and address this. And yes, there are other ways. One is a um, a vacuum pump, a penile vacuum pump, um, which many, many men, um, use and, and find, I mean, it may not sound like the sexiest thing, but it is effective. And then on top of that, you need a penile ring as well. Um, also, um, there's intracavernosal injections. There are urethral pellets. So there's lots of different alternatives aside from quote unquote, the little blue pills. And I did ask him how old his girlfriend was and she was 90. I was expecting him to say like 70 or something <laughs> anyway, but she was 90. And so this next message that I received, email that I received is, um, you know, it's something that I receive quite uh, often or something I see in my clinical practice. And, um, and I just think, oh my gosh, you know, this is all about you. This is not about caring about your partner at all, but you know what? It's a touchy subject. It's a sensitive subject, but here we go. Dear Maureen, I viewed your Ted X talk on no sex marriage from July, 2016. My question is about the humiliation that I will receive from my families, my wife's on my wife's and my side, after I expose a very expensive error in judgment, my weakness was in my focus on myself, which still is. And now that I have absorbed the anger from being stupid, if available from your understanding, how can I build on the strength to go forward in my life with the humility of my errors? Without going into details, I was interested in your feedback. And, you know, he was very cryptic in this message, but I understood exactly what he was saying. He basically had, had, obviously had an extramarital affair for whatever reason. And, um, maybe he'd wind and dine somebody. Anyway, he spent some potentially spent some money, but he also was, it was expensive perhaps because he was thinking that this would end in divorce. Um, nonetheless, he had an expensive error in judgment and he, he thought he felt as many people do feel that they have to go and confess to their spouse their, their partner, their husband, their wife, they feel compelled to, because that is going to make them feel better. And I 
completely told this guy that <laughs> here's the deal. You know, you obviously have made an error in judgment and you feel the, you feel compelled to, to make yourself feel better, to let your wife know that, um, that this had happened, but why, why would you do that? Because it's only going to help you. It is not going to help her. And people don't realize that at all. And, and, and I, I actually said to him, you know, thanks for your note. I'm not a hundred percent on what you mean here, but if I were to guess you're about to confess something to your wife, question mark, question mark, I would caution you that this may make you feel better while being very hurtful to your wife. I would give it careful consideration. And he wrote back and said, that is exactly what I needed to hear. And so I did, I did understand what he was trying to say to me, um, which, um, you know, and I was glad that yes, that was what it was and potentially had stopped that. But a lot of people will want to confess something that they have done. It's not going to do any harm. If they've learned from that, they can move on. They're in a, a stable, otherwise stable marriage. Um, they want to remain married. I mean, sometimes some of you might disagree with me out there that, you know, they feel that that should be, um, you know, that should be told that we, that there should be no secrets between. And you know what, it was a lapse in judgment, but it was the reply that he needed. And, and he so much as said that to me. So, you know, I, I did have a patient one time and, ah, we got to go to the break, but, um, I had a patient one time and he was in his eighties and, and he had been having affairs his entire life. He had gone to massage parlors, happy endings. He'd had girlfriends on the side and he felt compelled to tell his wife who was enjoying her grandchildren and gardening. And he felt that he was ashamed of his behaviors after 60 years <laughs> anyway. Um, and that he should somehow tell his wife. And I thought that at this stage of the game, why upset her apple cart? She was happy in her life and him telling her about all of this was going to do nothing for her and everything for him. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.